Hi everyone, welcome back to Is This For Real? Thank you for tuning in to our first episode of 2023. We've had a bit of a hard time starting up this year. And um, yeah, I'm just really happy and grateful to to be back recording with you, Nicholas. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Um, I definitely, you know, tuned out a little bit just around around New Year and around like the start of the year. I think part of it is fatigue. Part of it is just, you know, getting busier uh, with the new year. And once you kind of like stop paying close attention to some of this stuff that's happening or to the news or you kind of get used to stuff being covered with maybe less intensity because that's also kind of how it goes um, during during that season two. Um, it is tough to, I guess, commit to getting back into it because there is a stress that comes with that. There is a like toxicity and especially at the start of the year, there's kind of like a sense of dread. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about just repeating cycles of the same news, same kinds of incidents, same tragedies. And this, this has happened, you know, every year. And, um, yeah, it can just feel really bad to get into a new year thinking about that. Uh, you know, in 2023 so far, we've already seen like tragic shootings, police murders. It can be pretty demoralizing, just that idea of, okay, it's another another year of this. How are we going to make it through that? Mm-hmm. That feeling of uh, here we go again, it definitely sticks with me. And um, because of what we're talking about is violence and um systems really lashing out and punishing people it's not uh very enjoyable but i feel like not getting lost in uh individual events or the like cycle is super important um and it teaches a lot of different lessons at least for me when i'm able to like sit back for a little bit and then kind of piece together everything that's happened and see a little bit of why things are going the way that they're going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I guess in the spirit of not getting swept up in those same kind of news cycles this year, we uh, wanted to take this episode to trace uh, the journey up to where we are now, starting with the police. And you may have seen... Uh, a bunch of news about police in recent weeks. Uh, you know, you may have noticed a bit of a shift in sentiment of politicians becoming a lot more friendly or approving of police. You might have noticed uh, news about the province getting more directly involved in policing. Uh, taking it back to last year, this is something that we, I guess, really tried to hammer home throughout uh, the last season as it was happening, but city council raised the police budget several times. Uh, we went into 2022 with a police budget of 384 million and ended the year with a police budget of 418.5 million. On top of that, um, city council at the end of the year during the budget um, discussions, uh, approved another $77.6 million uh, for police infrastructure, uh, equipment, and expenses um, over the next three years. So 
we're coming into 2023 with this huge momentum of increasing police funding and uh, liberal spending on police from our city council. And the messaging, I feel like, is also a bit difficult because since 2020, there's been a pretty solid acknowledgement from most liberal councillors and politicians generally that the root cause of the reason why police exist, violence, uh, disorder, uh, a number of crimes is poverty, is addiction, is mental illness, mental health. And all of those points are brought up pretty frequently um, when police are brought up as well in budget talks to say that we need investment. And in Edmonton specifically, that cry for help has been placed at the feet of the province. Um, Like we mentioned last season, the city has been deflecting to the province a lot on these responsibilities for social uh, issues that are at the core of problems but then throwing money at things that arguably make these problems much worse at downtown business development that increases gentrification and throwing more money at police, but also collaborating now with the province to increase funding for addictions and homelessness, specifically in Edmonton and Calgary. And this was announced in October and The province's approach to mental health and addictions has been very um, specific and it doesn't take a harm reduction approach. It takes a recovery first approach that further undermines um, the message that is often put out by, um, I'd say, yeah, more liberal um, counselors around um, treating these basic social issues um, that are now basically being treated with more police. Yeah, this is a really interesting dynamic because the city and province have kind of positioned themselves as like diametrically opposed, at least ideologically, on how to um, address homelessness and uh, mental illness and addiction. Um, And I guess the so-called like social disorder downtown... um, Yet they kind of also need to, I don't know, like celebrate that funding as like a collaborative win or something. So you definitely had a bit of this confusing moment in October where the province announced this um, $187 million uh, towards addiction and homelessness supports throughout Alberta. And this was celebrated by the province and by local politicians as a big collaborative win. You know, you had Amarjeet Sohi, um, councillors who were the same people who were saying, all we need is is this funding from the province for addictions and uh, homelessness, and that will solve the root causes of these issues and allow us to get to a spot where we can, you know, potentially defund the police or stop giving them these ridiculous budget increases. And then the funding came and it was celebrated as a win because like all politicians, uh, they want to show that they're doing something and take the wins that they can get, show people that they're making progress and getting things done. Yet now they're in the spot where 
they've gotten the funding, but it's like in the hands of the province that isn't obviously going to spend it on the things that they supposedly want the province to spend it on that they're saying is out of their jurisdiction. A recent change that we were talking about before is how a lot of the social uh, issues umbrella or social issues management is now dictated by police themselves, right? Where this connection between police mm-hmm. becoming more politicized, police having more influence in things like data creation and tracking for um, social disorder or addictions um, being the direct uh, connection uh, through third-party organizations like Help Seekers Technologies out of Calgary to really set the precedent for how anything is going to happen. It's really head-scratching to, to think of how there's the two sides of the same coin of um, having uh, police being seen as a solution, but then having um, social services um, being seen as another solution when um, the money that's being said that's going into social services is just going into the police and the police are dictating how social services are being um, managed or at least uh, the future of provincial spending and city spending at pretty high amounts in that kind of sector. So it doesn't really uh, make sense, especially given the um, the messaging during elections and how things have turned out um, so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the police definitely have uh, a firm grasp on these like levers of power. And I guess we see that pretty clearly in this idea of the Public Safety and Community Response Task Force, which was uh, just formed in December as the province's way of utilizing some of that $187 million that was Uh, set aside for addictions and homelessness supports. And there were uh, two Edmonton city councillors who were appointed to be on this task force. And wouldn't you know it, it's two of the councillors who are the most vocally in support of police. Um, You've got Tim Cartmel, who is actually, to his credit, very ideologically consistent. He's always... Him him and uh, Karen... Principe, they're just like, yeah, we don't, we don't care. We're super strongly in support of police, no matter what they do. Um, and that's just the line we're sticking to. And then you've got Sarah Hamilton, who, um, as you might remember back in 2020 said, uh, march on Yeg. I'll be in your ranks tonight. Um, Black Lives Matter. And then throughout her term as a city councilor, proceeded to uh, gaslight Edmontonians as she continuously voted for successive police budget increases. Um, Sarah Hamilton is also on this uh, community response task force. The uh, the appointments of uh, Sarah Hamilton and Tim Cartmel came uh, as a surprise for the rest of council. And um, a lot of the maneuvering that has been done after by these two counselors has been done almost to make them stand aside or apart from the rest of council as a state of exception in a more liberal or some might say anti-police kind of council that um, Cartmel and Hamilton are reasonable and are able to work with the province 
Um, and the statement that was put out by Sarah Hamilton as a quote after her appointment in a position that, quite frankly, if it was a different situation, it might be the mayor or a different collection of counselors that would be in this position. But um, because the circumstances were here now and this statement says we have to rise above sorry, we have to rise above our differences for the betterment of our city. It's why we're called to serve publicly. Our egos cannot get involved in the work. Um, but by standing apart and by trying to create this difference um, in a council that has been different, maybe in wording or in kind of optics, but in voting and in budgeting and how money has moved has been almost completely uh, similar. Um, I think it just goes to show that a lot of it is really about ego, right? And making it seem like certain counselors are able to work with the province and enact this like very conservative, um, very pro-police um, action, um, while others have to kind of catch up or be viewed as like separate from that. Um, despite the fact that, again, we've seen a lot of um, support for police, both in a kind of optics kind of sense, but also in where it matters the most, which is in the budget and um, in how resources are decided to be allocated and ultimately uh, given out. Yeah, what you mentioned right now is really interesting because, again, council voted uh, over and over again last year to keep raising the police budget. They've demonstrated that they are very pro-police, very generous to police. There's almost no question about that. And if I were someone uh, in the provincial government, I would definitely see that. Like, oh, hey, we... Um, we have a city council up in Edmonton that is entirely willing to continue voting for um, continuous budget increases on the police. That actually aligns well with um, our mandate of a um, police-friendly or police-driven uh, approach to um, managing uh, crime and disorder and uh, drug use. But there's also this interesting dynamic where the UCP are heading pretty soon into a provincial election. Currently, the UCP don't have much of a foothold here in Edmonton. Um, it's pretty much just our main man, Casey Madhu, up here. And it's very useful for the UCP to cast Edmonton as their example of, you know, the province gone wrong. We don't have power in this area of the province, and look what happened. Um, so from that sense, it's actually very useful. Although the UCP uh, in policy is actually very aligned with the actions of our city council in continuing to raise the police budget, it's very convenient for the UCP to continue to cast Edmonton as and, and Edmonton City Council as kind of an enemy in order to show the rest of the province that they're going to take the correct approach, a more you know, tough-on-crime approach to this disorder. 
So part of the task force and one of the first decisions that they've made, um, and in line with what you were saying before, Nicholas, is adding a dozen sheriffs that are going to be deployed in Edmonton's downtown. This um, issue has like continued to compound itself um, for a few years now, where originally after a social disorder in downtown, police redeployed and added more of their own people to solve that issue. City Council then stepped in again and decided to increase funding after it was requested for a Healthy Streets Operations Center, specifically in Chinatown, to address tragedy that was happening there. After that, there was even more investment happening from the province now for the same issue to add in 12 sheriffs to, again, police the same areas, Chinatown, downtown Edmonton. Um, And this is all happening at the same time that we are having real open and honest admissions that the root of these problems doesn't lie with less or more policing. It lies with access to stable housing, access to mental health treatment, to addictions treatment, um, to even things like safe supply that isn't really talked about or acknowledged in Alberta, but has shown empirically um, to help people to decrease the problems that we're solving with more police. So it is, again, really head-scratching and very difficult to be in this position because it's the double kind of juggling where the only solution that's being um, given is more uh, police, but at the same time, we talk about other solutions, but we don't invest nearly as much into them. Yeah, exactly. It shows you how all roads end up leading back to police funding. And I think that is just a really good example of how firm of a grasp they have on those like uh, levers of power, where the city can say that they're giving more money to support the community, you know, through the, the healthy streets um, operation center. Oh, we're giving more money to, to Chinatown, you know, look what they've been going through. Uh, but actually that money is just going directly towards police. Mm-hmm. You know, the province can say, we're putting more money towards homelessness and addiction supports. But <laughs> turns out that money is actually just going towards police. I thought it was really interesting. There's a tweet here uh, f- just after the announcement that um, the UCP through this task force was deploying 12 more sheriffs to downtown. Um, this tweet is from Ann Stevenson, who has typically been one of the more, I don't know, not anti-police, but she's like more been more hesitant mm-hmm. um, or against the budget increases, right? I think there was that there was one budget increase in particular that there were only like three councillors um, who voted against it, and I think she was one of them. Um, but yeah, her, her tweet here says today, the public safety and community response task force announced 12 Alberta sheriffs will support the healthy streets operations center. They'll complement the 36 EPS officers and 20 peace officers and fire rescue staff that the city committed to this initiative in August. And then a follow up. I'm grateful for these resources and look forward to future announcements from the task force that support proactive measures to address the challenges facing our core. Collaboration with our partners at the province will be essential to improving safety downtown and across hashtag YEG. Mm-hmm. Got to get the hashtag in there. Oh, yeah. And 
I'm just going to read one of the responses here um, from uh, an Edmontonian uh, that I think just sums it up really well. Um, Adam Piercy says, I would have hoped for a more critical statement than grateful for more cops from a counselor that campaigned on reducing funding to police. Um, so yeah, that that sums it up really well. And I think what I mentioned earlier about the dynamic that the UCP finds themselves in um, approaching their upcoming election and how that makes it convenient for them to cast Edmonton as an enemy, that also triggers this response from local politicians where now they feel a need to prove that they aren't the enemy or they aren't as they are being cast. No, we're, we're not uh, soft on crime. We're not being antagonistic to the police. Look how friendly we are. Look how embracing we are of having more police downtown. And I think there is also a bit of that dynamic that you mentioned earlier, Omar, where it's a bit awkward that these two councillors were appointed onto the council, um, you know, specifically because they don't really align, you know, ideologically with council. Um, but there's almost a need amongst the rest of the council to still kind of awkwardly seem like they're maintaining a unified front. So that's where you get this kind of tone here from uh, Councillor Anne Stevenson, where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm also in support of that. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah, despite running a campaign and uh, having very open conversations about freezing um, or diverting some of the police budget in Edmonton, uh, Mayor Sohi is now making blog posts that have like very specific detail points about how much money and investment has been put into increasing um, mm-hmm. police resources and just making officers more available in downtown. And just to quote some of this um, from the blog post, uh, it says here, to improve public safety, we have increased funding to the Edmonton Police Service by $7 million for 2023 and transferred them $22.3 million to make up for the provincial government's reduction to traffic safety automated enforcement revenue provided $15.2 million to the Healthy Streets Operations Center for 2023 and 2024, provided $3.9 million to the Transit Safety Plan, provided funding to increase cleaning in the downtown core, um, as well as increase the number of police officers and peace officers' presence in the area. And this continues. I haven't even gone through the entire listing here, but um, this is the same blog post that has a section at the beginning that again acknowledges the social determinants <laughs> of yeah. disorder that mentions the importance of tackling a mental health crisis and addictions crisis. Um, so it goes back to, to the, the confusion and the, um, I guess, the importance to posture for uh, the conservative province and to ditch previous promises or acknowledgements um, or just be open about both things happening at the same time um, when there are very clear finite pools of money and um, it's clear that one issue is is being uh, neglected and the other one is being heavily heavily invested in and um, with a like angle to also show the public and be very visible about that investment uh, yeah one thing that it's been I guess kind of funny and a little bit hopeful to see is just some of the 
comments on um, Amarjeet Sohi's Instagram here um, on the same day as this announcement of the new sheriffs that the province was sending in. So he posted a photo with a bunch of transit officers and said, it was great to have coffee with officers from the transit community action teams and Edmonton Police Service this morning. Uh, the team has deployed 22 transit peace officers and two sergeants who serve our transit network. I deeply appreciate the work of these teams and the role they play in addressing social disorder in our city. This is part of an evidence-based approach to enforcement that focuses on hotspots and increasing the visibility of officers. There's uh, a bunch of comments underneath this post kind of calling out the inaccuracy or even hypocrisy, you could say, in how um, it was written. Uh, and it looks like the post has also been edited and comments on it have also now been limited. So I guess there's a little bit of evidence there of perhaps walking something back or walking back part of the post, as well as the uh, Office of the Mayor's tried and true approach of limiting critical engagement. So yeah, I really encourage you to uh, check out this post and uh, look at the comments. I guess you won't be able to leave one yourself. Um, but you can certainly like the ones that you agree with. And I'm just going to read out one here by uh, Gladu underscore Rochelle, uh, which I think sums it up pretty well. Um, it says, The only evidence I see here is the high recidivism rates that these officers are contributing to by further marginalizing folks who already can't afford to pay for the often multiple fines they receive from these peace officers. The real evidence shows the perpetual harm caused by the increase of these very officers. Increase in officers does not equate to safer spaces. Instead, it equates to an increase in fines to folks who can't and most won't pay and only further marginalizes folks. Folks who are frequently ticketed, for example, multiple fines for seeking shelter, now face more barriers, making it more difficult to exit homelessness or poverty. This can be due to unpaid fines, not being able to get a job, etc. Their main goal is to hand out fines to folks who can't pay for said fine, and the more fines a person receives, the better, because it makes them more arrestable so they can be banned from property. And apparently that's a quote from a peace officer. The only evidence here, Sohi, is your ongoing support for the criminalization of homelessness. I'm disheartened. Teams like this will keep the cycle ongoing. The evidence-based approaches needed are long-term solutions, affordable housing, SCSs, shelter spaces, drop-in shelters, social sector job security to address worker burnout, more outreach positions with more services to refer folks to, and then I guess there's probably a second part of this comment, but uh, you probably need to scroll a bit in order to um, see it because they have all been uh, randomized. Yeah, I think that comment is pretty spot on. Something that's especially encouraging is that so he's kind of circle, you know, the people who are likely to follow him and see his posts and want to engage with him are typically more of the, I don't know, like neoliberal types. And it's encouraging to see the tide kind of shifting there, or I guess it getting ridiculous to a point where even they are willing to call it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people saw how vocal... Um a lot of politicians were about um, trying to 
change how um, some of the core societal problems are, are approached or solved and moving away from heavy investment into policing. So to see what's happened in 2023 so far, I think has a lot of people willing to go out and like comment and, and say things that they may may have not said before, which which is nice to see. Yeah. So yeah, that's basically the journey to where we got to the point that we are now with police. Just real quick update, because I guess it took us longer to talk about that than we thought. 2022 saw the city council increase the police budget multiple times. The province announced millions of dollars in funding for addiction and homelessness uh, across Alberta. They formed this public safety and community response task force and appointed two of the most police-friendly city councillors onto it as a way of kind of getting around the city and also framing the Edmonton City Council as kind of an enemy in order to posture ahead of the upcoming provincial election. Uh, They then used that task force to deploy additional police into downtown with that very money that they supposedly committed to uh, addictions and homelessness supports. And then the local politicians, especially those who ran on platforms of decreasing or freezing the police budget, are now activated in order to affirm their support for police and kind of oppose how the uh, UCP is trying to cast them. And I think it's getting to a point where more Edmontonians are recognizing that this is getting ridiculous and calling out uh, local politicians as we all should be. With overlapping social crises happening um, across Edmonton and Canada, there are a lot more, um, sorry, there is a lot more attention being paid to nonprofits and the charity sector and how mission statements and the purpose for the sector being driven to really solve or at least alleviate a lot of these problems. So um, different examples like food banks, um, there are organizations that focus a lot on child care and making sure that there are options for communities to have access to sports or uh, healthy food or uh, parenting or child care programs. Um, there are, are services for new immigrants and resettlement, um, housing, but all under the larger umbrella of the nonprofit or charity sector. Um, so I was lucky enough to be able to talk to someone who's been working for almost a decade in the sector and has a lot of very unique insights into um, the shortcomings and the like inherent flaws that happen um, in our current system in Canada and specifically in the nonprofit sector. So I'm really excited to um, play this interview and share it with everyone. Um, please excuse my low energy um, for the interview. I promise that my questions are pretty fast, so you won't have to hear me for very long. But I hope you enjoy the answers and we'll be back after that conversation. So I, I have a few notes from our last conversation but i feel like it's worth maybe starting with an intro talking a little bit about how you 
might struggle with having this kind of conversation or maybe what brought you to where you are today um, in the nonprofit sector, but also like in your own personal life, um, what factors kind of led you to this conversation today? Yeah, um, well, I'm a person that has always wanted to have a career that centers around helping other people ever have had a talent or interest in like the sale of goods and services and have always preferred to have employment in something much more people focused um, and those sorts of things uh, with like a social mission behind it, essentially. And I have pursued that career and it has been largely fulfilling and it has been um the way I have earned a living and the way that I have gotten to the place where I am at now, which is generally good. But um, the issues that I've seen with like working in the nonprofit sector have only been magnified the more that I continue to work and like move up in these different uh, institutions. And it all kind of centers around the nonprofit sector not being equipped to do the things that it says it wants to do, which is very troubling if you're a person who similarly goes into the sector to make a difference, to um, change the world. And, and I say that like non-derisively. I think it's lovely that people want careers that have this deep social purpose, especially looking at the world it is right now. It needs help. Um, but unfortunately, from what I've seen from the nonprofit sector, from a bunch of different levels of it, um, there is a definite limitation in what can be accomplished with this sort of framework, what can be accomplished within the sector. Um, nearly across the board, I haven't worked at every institution, I haven't worked at every organization, but they all have very similar um, systemic limitations and issues to them. And it makes it so that you often squander a lot of the resources, both the human resources and the um, actual resources that come into the sector. And they ultimately don't reflect the outcomes that people would expect uh, come out of this sector. So I suppose the reason that I'm speaking with you is that as things have gotten a lot harder socioeconomically in our city, um, and as things like food bank shortages and, and Galen Weston getting in the news more and more often, um, houselessness, um, especially, um, as it pertains to like the visibility of houselessness on things like public transit and the recent response of like policing as opposed to social services. I just feel like things are coming to a head where this kind of needs to be said that like the nonprofit sector is not going to be the thing that helps or saves or fixes these larger issues. It really does need to come from a more resourced, centralized, moneyed policy place. Um, and in the meantime, the nonprofit sector kind of spins its wheels, tries its best, but ultimately I don't think it's this it's the fix that we're kind of looking for right now. 
you mentioned uh, systemic issues in the sector. Um, do you want to touch on a few that you've experienced or things that you've worked through um, during your time in the sector? Yeah, absolutely. Um, where to begin? So I suppose one of the big ones that I'm sure people outside of the nonprofit sector are at least passingly aware of is funding. Um, nonprofits ultimately are supposed to have some sort of purpose attached to them. Well, I guess I'll make a differentiation. Charitable organizations, which is a different thing according to the CRA, have a social mission attached to them. That's why they're able to gain their charitable status. And we often see those working towards different things like poverty reduction or poverty elimination, um, supporting of unhoused people, uh, public safety, those sorts of those sorts of things. But the funding behind them never is enough to really address these issues, at least in the long term, because the way that nonprofits and charities are funded is often through funding that comes from the private sector, corporations um, and those sorts of things, and the public sector through government grants programs and those streams of funding. And there seems to be a chronic underfunding of nonprofits. It's almost like a running gag, a meme at this point that the people that work at these organizations are pretty um, considerably underpaid when compared to people that are doing equivalent work in the private or public sector. Um, and then even when it comes to the operational funding, never mind the fact that you have to pay people, the funding that comes to do programs that would eliminate poverty, that would help vulnerable populations is it has strings honestly um depending on the funding source you need to ensure that the program that you intend to run the initiative that you intend to run with the funding that you receive is often um stipulated by the funder as opposed to the organization sometimes there is a connection there and that's great you get to do the thing that your organization wants to do the funder gets what they wanted and that's great. But oftentimes the power dynamic is just that the funders requirements for the funding trump what the organization wants to do, which means if the outcomes attached to the grant aren't one to one what you actually need to do with the funding, unfortunately, you need to change your program. And that could be a less um, effective program, or it could just be a program that is not actually required or needed by the community that you wish to serve at the time, which again begs the question, like what is your organization doing if not addressing the need that you said that you would? Um, and like, that's like a big part of it. The other part of it is timelines, especially when it comes to funding from federal organizations. But this is, if you're getting grant funding from any external source, this is often the case. Um, your funding is typically tied to a fiscal year. Uh, and there are very few impactful, long-term social interventions that can be made on a fiscal schedule. Um, if you are given 18 months to implement a program that is going to, by some measurable degree, reduce houselessness or support X number of children, youth, seniors, whatever. Um, best of luck in doing that in any long-term way. 
Uh, best of luck in having a quantifiable way to even track your measurements of this. Um, perhaps quantitative information like number of people served by this funding isn't even an effective way to measure the impact of what you are doing. Um, there's not a lot of leeway for depth of impact when it comes to funding like this. And then again, 18 months or whatever amount of time you're given is simply not enough. Like we talk about um, social changes in terms of generations often, and very rarely, I haven't seen it, um, will you receive funding that allows you to run a program for much more than five years, much less a generation. We talk about the poverty cycle a lot in nonprofits, and it is a cycle that falls upon generational lines. I've never seen a program that runs for an entire generation. I've never seen a monitoring structure that runs for an entire generation and actually lets the program run its course because funders have their own agendas and they have their other things that they want to go and fund and they cannot wait for a initiative like this to take effect and take hold and actually move the needle forward. So it all just is kind of set up to fail in that way when it comes to like the funding of it all. So that's like one systemic kind of aspect of it. Um, and that's not even touching upon the staffing component of it. I guess now might be a good time to jump in with a question on that point about the staffing. Um, what kind of culture do you think contributes to, um, you, you mentioned funding before as a systemic issue, but how does culture fit in and, and how is that represented in um, what you were mentioning? It's funny in, in nonprofits because from what I've seen, nonprofits are predominantly staffed and informed by people who would never see themselves as the recipients of the nonprofits um, outputs. So if you have a nonprofit that is meant to support marginalized children, um, let's say low income families um, that need maybe a simple one is nutritional support, food security. Um, in some instances, you can absolutely have a crossover where your staff are people who formerly or currently experience food insecurity in their own lives, and they do this for the love of that mission. There are many people who used to be in care, in foster care, in group homes, and those sorts of things, who then become social workers because that's what they want to do. Um, but very often what you'll find is that people come to the nonprofit realm because they like the mission, but they have no experience, lived experience in the clients that they are meant to serve. So you get these organizations that are pretty well-to-do, middle-class, predominantly white, or at least in this part of the, the world, predominantly white, serving um, BIPOC, low-income, uh, marginalized groups that often even just geographically don't live anywhere near them. So if you have a nonprofit that has like a brick and mortar location set up in one part of the city, um, often the people that work there are going to commute in and they won't have any connections to the clients outside of a professional lens, which when you talk about culture, I think is 
very dangerous because now you are looking at a certain group of people only through the auspices of client caregiver um, relationships. You kind of dehumanize these people or at the very least you have no context for what life for them is truly like other than someone who is seeking a service from you. And I don't know what that looks like for the rest of your life when you leave your workplace and you go to your own area of the city where there's perhaps you perhaps have more homogenized friend group, you um, live in a community that does not experience the same issues or concerns as the one that you work in. It just creates that skew um, within the people that make up these organizations. And that has an absolute effect in informing the culture of these organizations. Um, so if you have a culture of like the ways that you communicate, the ways that you hire and refer people to your organization, um, and it is all built in this very homogenous way that is not reflective of the clients of your organization. I don't think you're gonna. I don't think you're gonna hit the nail on the head when it comes to how you inform the outputs of your organization because you you have no idea what is the need. I don't know. <laughs> um, you might only be informed by theory, and you might only be informed by academic experts. Maybe you have selected a handful of models or um, academic um, theories of change and those sorts of things, and that's how you run your organization. But those often become outdated or didn't take into account a client's perspective in the first place. So you get kind of stuck um, in culture and it doesn't grow, it doesn't adapt and um it's not just not reflective and like that's kind of a bigger issue of uh, nonprofits when it comes to culture and hiring and these sorts of things there isn't enough of the people that are supposed to be the recipients the benefactors of your service actually facilitating the surface or the service because nonprofits over the last bunch of years have also become incredibly bureaucratized um and professionalized uh where there's lots of folks with very advanced degrees doing this job um when in reality I, th I think lots of nonprofits just want to create community want to bring resources to bear for their clients why does that require a master's degree why does that require accreditation through the college of such and such i don't know <laughs> i think we've just kind of built it that way um and again, it just, it's just that extra layer of keeping these organizations from being as effective as I think they could be. This is uh, especially difficult today, given the situation uh, with the economy in Canada um, and in Alberta, especially in Edmonton as well. We have uh, the situation with Loblaws and um, the Weston family there are a lot of pressures when it comes to wages being very stagnant for most people and the government not stepping in for any relief. Um, and the relief that is given out is very means tested and there are a lot of hoops to jump through. So now really seems like the time that um, I guess this mission that a lot of organizations have is kind of being put to the test. Um, and City Hall, for example, in Edmonton has gone through and um, I guess kind of done an audit of End Poverty Edmonton, um, a local organization, and 
what's come out uh, of that kind of looking behind the curtain is that a lot of poor people just aren't spoken to, don't have representation in the process um, and are kind of um, being dictated what should be, you know, proper policy or things just the ball isn't really rolling. Um, and similar, um, but different situation with and homelessness and how that was a, a big banner, um, in politics for the past 20 years in the city. Um, so with missions failing consistently, um, do you think government intervention, um, to, regulate the sector is the answer or are there different answers? Cause that kind of was the beginning of the conversation. Um, what the answer might be. So, um, what do you think is the answer or at least like moving in a direction that is closer to what the missions of a lot of these nonprofits are a little bit of a rambly question, but, um, no, no, I, I, I get it. Um, I would be hesitant to say that a government entity would be the solution, or at least oversight from government would be the solution, because as I understand it, the the government is a large part of why this structure is the way it is right now. Um, nonprofits used to very much be grassroots, local kinds of um like you wouldn't even really call them nonprofits. like we didn't have this like business accreditation these sorts of things it would literally be groups largely um non-secular groups like things coming out of churches and and those sorts of things um that would see a need a social need get together address the need and then disband um and then throughout the mid to late 1900s we saw this bureaucratization and this creation of like a proper capital s social sector um and that was a pretty intentional move to offload a lot of these social um, missions and social aspects of what a government is meant to do um and put them onto nonprofits and charitable organizations um so they have built kind of this infrastructure that we see right now that is just constantly not addressing the need. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they or their oversight would be the thing that we need. Um, but I like, like I'd said earlier, I do think that we need a more centralized take here. Um, perhaps it is a closer partnership or perhaps it is just a recognition that, um, if we are truly trying to reach these missions, we need to think in a longer term lens. And although that is expensive and inconvenient, it has to happen um, because you, you were talking about these missions earlier. A lot of these missions, at least as far as I can tell, are metaphorical at this point. Um, I don't think that there are many nonprofits that are truly looking to work themselves out of a job anymore. Um, there are lots that have ingrained themselves in the way that the social sector even just functions. There are lots of these backbone organizations that take in money directly from government and corporate donors and then disperse it to other nonprofits. Like the, there's a real sophisticated system of funding and recipients and marketing and communications at this point where it's like, if we really did 
end poverty in a generation. I believe that was the mission of that organization. I, I don't know, would the, would the board of directors like that, would the staff at that organization, like, I, I, I can't read their minds and know what their intentions are, but at least based on this last um, investigation, I suppose, or this audit that they were under, it doesn't seem like they pointed their outputs in that direction. Um, and it might seem like a no-brainer to me because I've just been in this work for so long, um, and I don't, I do not have all the answers, but to say that you want to end poverty and then not speak to people in poverty, I think tells me everything <laughs> about like how serious you are about achieving this mission. So in terms of like what the solution is, um, I really, I, I guess I would have to say that it depends. I think a lot of the work that needs to happen or the lo a lot of the work that social sectors wants to take on is very local and context specific and even depends on the nature of the need. Like if we're talking about food security, well, that is a, I think ideally multi-level, multi-sectoral solution that does absolutely involve the government and does implement things like um, caps on how much things can cost. Like, I, I mean, in my ideal situation, certain kinds of food are just free. You just give the food away because people need to eat. Um, but at the very least, like, how come there isn't a cap on how much rice could possibly be priced at? How Potatoes, like these basic needs that people would immediately see a benefit from. Um, that is not something that a food bank can do. That is not something that food banks are even here for. They are um, the first to say that they can't fix food insecurity. They are there as an aid. Um, so it does require a more centralized government solution. But then there are other aspects and like social issues that I think would require a much more complex um, solution. So things like, um, well, I don't know, we can talk about housing. Um, there needs to be multi-level governmental um, communication in how we are actually going to bring housing to bear. In some aspects, in some parts of the country, it is an issue of supply. There are literally not enough houses. In other places, that is not the case. It's more about zoning and um, whether or not um, people are accepting of things like short-term solutions like shelters or longer-term solutions like mixed housing units even going up anywhere around them. There's urban planning at play. In the meantime, social sector, absolutely. We need to find the people that are looking for housing, communicate with them, work with them, ensure what their needs are so that when they are housed, they are able to stay housed. Um, but yeah, it, it truly does depend. Um, but the way that things are right now seemingly downloads a lot of the um, responsibility to a sector that was never set up to be able to fix these massive issues. Um, so I guess it, it, it kind of results in like a scapegoating effect of like the social sector isn't doing enough or the social sector is ineffective or the social sector is irresponsible with its money, which in a vacuum, if you, if you look at it, like you might be able to say like, yeah, that's all true. Yes, but what did you expect? You know, <laughs> um, like how, how else would we'd be able to address these issues um, single-handedly. We, we simply can't. Um, and that is disheartening. Um, it, I, I have 
hope that we can get to this place because I think, as you said, like things are getting worse. Um, I think we're going to have to um, at some point. Uh, and I hope we get there soon. But right now, it seems as though we're just kind of spinning our wheels. And anytime there is a massive rise in social issues like we're seeing right now, I don't know, all of the things that seem to be approved pretty quickly involve policing. I mean, we're, we're entering what a 15 week sheriff um, thing in the city of Edmonton here. We're just going to have more Alberta sheriffs walking the streets to address safety concerns. I don't know what a sheriff is going to do to help people that live in a encampment. Um, I have a pretty good idea of what they're going to do. I don't think it's going to be very helpful. Um, but that's what we get um, when clearly the need is a bit more nuanced and requires a lot less police. But I don't know, we need, uh, I guess, political will to political and economic will, because it is going to cost money. It is going to fundamentally challenge the ways that capital works in this city. What happens when everyone can actually afford food? What happens when we decommodify at least a little bit of the housing market to make it so that people can get off of like that ground level and actually um, have some stability to build other aspects of their life out? I, I don't know. It's, it sounds awesome for me, but I know there are lots of people that um, have vested interests in maybe not seeing that come to bear. So no a very uh a very good answer um and i feel like the the vested interest in keeping a, a worsening situation going um is definitely something i think we're going to talk about more with the podcast but um where do you kind of see um yourself going with the sector or at least do you feel like things are going to continue to grow or needs are going to increase while um, the sector stagnates or do you think that lessons are being learned and things are being adapted um, to better serve people but like you said before it's it's kind of a planned obsolescence or like it's 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 a planned futility so um, is there is there any uh, thing that brings you hope or where do you kind of see things going in in your own kind of personal direction or uh, well I guess personal direction, I am probably going to leave the sector. Um, it is a lot to go to a job where you want to do well, you want to make social impacts, and you want to help the people in and around your community. But between a lack of funding, between a bureaucratic um, structure, um, this, that, and the third, it is very difficult to continue to do that just again and again and again um, when you don't see that impact actually come to bear. Um, and then also on top of that, you know that uh, some of the most impactful changes that can be made, at least on an individual level, are outside of conventional charity, outside of conventional nonprofits and more things like mutual aid. Um, being able to just take whatever resources you and your community can amass, no bureaucracy involved, just um, the collection of resources, identifying where the needs are, dispersing those resources. There's no means testing. There's no administrative um, overheads. There's no communication or marketing that needs to be done as part of this. You just see the need and you fill the need. 
Um, that seems like the wave. Um, it seems like uh, the ways that individuals can more effectively and directly meet the needs of the people in their community without involving these massive um, apparatuses um, as part of the process. So that that that's kind of my personal thing. Like I think that I might be better served at um, in a different sector in whatever that looks like um, with perhaps a bit more structure to it, more funding attached to it. Um, you may or may not be doing something that has a very social um, outcome to it, but at the very least, if you yourself are more secure and you still keep that intention to do um, or to, to contribute to social benefits, you can use your security and your resources and your privilege to help the people around your community. I'm not trying to say that this is an individualistic exercise, but we need individuals who are well, who are not burnt out, who are secure financially to help everyone. Because if you are also struggling, it's very hard to help anyone, you know? Um, so that's me personally. Um, as far as the sector goes, I don't know. Um, I am leaning towards being a bit pessimistic uh, and saying that the uh, kind of er earlier to what you had said that like the sector, the structures around it aren't going to change overnight. The best hope that we could have would be like an injection of public funding to address the rising social needs. And then maybe that would help. But I think a lot of the folks that work in the sector have been on the front lines, so to speak, of this social crisis throughout the entire COVID pandemic and before that. And they're getting tired. Um, we're also just seeing that like there's a generational gap in a lot of nonprofits, like the directorial and executive directors of a lot of nonprofits are older and reaching retirement age. And then there's a kind of large gap between them and the newer staff that are involved in these organizations. And what is that gap going to look like in terms of leadership? Um, I don't know. It's not looking great. Um, it might lead to some pretty, for lack of a better term, messy transitions. So I'm not, I'm not sure what that's going to end up looking like. And if we're talking about private funding coming into these organizations, I have seen nothing but private corporations laying people off, um, raising their prices, whether they need to or just because they wanted to. Um, and I think that's going to be reflected in their donations to charities. Um, more organizations are also trying to create their own charities, like lots of private sectors, uh, private organizations now have charitable foundations attached to them that ensure that more of their money stays in their control and can go towards the outcomes that they want, which, I mean, I'm all for anything that is going to help people in need. I just don't trust private organizations that profit off the system as it is to be able to fix the system. Uh, so, so to answer your question personally, I think I need to, need to make my leave, um, from the sector, uh, and system wide, I have no idea, but it doesn't look great. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, is there anything else that you want to add that we didn't touch on or that you think listeners should know? Yeah, just, just one thing I want to add, because I want to ensure the listener knows that I'm 
trying to come from a constructive place. Um, I have enjoyed a career in the nonprofit sector, in the social sector for many years, and it has been inclusive of some of the best jobs that I've ever had um, and some of the best experiences I've ever had. And that isn't just from like a personal perspective, but I really do think that in my time here and there, um, I have been able to witness some actual changes in individuals, um, very seldomly on a systemic level, but um, some of the experiences and the people that I have met along this way have been lifelong, life-altering experiences, and they have been wonderful. But again, talking about that systemic level, the reason that I want to kind of highlight the sector is because I think systemically, it is not what we need. Um, I think we are nonprofits by and large are making the most of a bad situation in terms of where they are situated in the economy, how they are funded, their access to resources, staffing, etc. Um, and it's not always the fault of the organization itself for not being able to meet those needs. In fact, if we're talking on a system-wide level, it, it often can't be the fault of the organization um, for failing to meet those um, needs. But I just think that we need a critical reassessment of the way that these organizations are funded, structured, and how they play their role and what um, the governments, um, particularly government bodies, can do to actually address the needs, the missions that these organizations set out to do. Because as things get diffi more difficult and as we see rising costs of living across everything, it is simply not enough to expect that the donations made typically around the holidays to your nonprofit of choice are going to keep this thing afloat because they're not. And that is why I, and that is what I'm hoping is the takeaway of this conversation, not to vilify um, the sector or the organizations within the sector, but to optimize. We, we just need collectively to do better. All right. Uh, welcome back. Uh, I think that was a really great interview, Omar. What are maybe some of your thoughts listening back to that? Yeah, one thing I definitely wish I approached differently um, in my questioning at the end was I kind of asked a question that was mostly focused on assuming that there is a solution to some of the maybe like built-in obsolescence for the nonprofit sector and that that solution might be found in more government regulation oversight. Um, but I think that approach to a question is almost misguided because um, if there was a solution, I think there would be some action around it, or at least people would be mobilizing or uh, talking about it more. But uh, that doesn't necessarily exist. So I think asking questions from a space of um, more openness and kind of acknowledging that there isn't an answer and trying to think of alternatives um, or things that can subvert our current um 
either nonprofit system or political system, I think is more constructive and I think brings out better answers or more creative kind of answers. Um, but outside of that, I think it was really, um, it was really eye opening and interesting to have a better understanding of the, uh, bureaucracy, but then also the, the, the problems that are like very inherent with, um, a, uh, an entire industry that I think really has a, a very strong and very positive image, but I think really holds back progress in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, gotcha. So I guess with that in mind, what are um, some questions that you would want to pose to, let's say, other people working in the nonprofit sector or just to leave people with who are um, listening? I think one thing is how can um, work be transformed to um, serve generational timelines um, and timelines that are more honest and more connected to um, the struggles and experiences that people face and how needs are, are created to begin with. Um, how can attention be diverted towards uh, thinking at that scale or funding even at that scale and level? Um, I think that definitely really, really piqued my interest. And um, I think also really decentralizing um, the the sector and, and having things be um, less bureaucratic and, and more at a community level um, and more of a local level, um, I think definitely interests me and, and kind of asking more questions of how how possible is it to deconstruct or at least like uh, remove the, the focus away from uh, organizations that have been built up for, in some cases, for, for decades, for very, very long, long periods of time. And a culture, too, that I think um, prioritizes uh, things like that was mentioned in the interview, donating during Christmas time being a tradition um, and donating to specific places as well. Um, how can that attention and culture be diverted into more useful and um, tangible ways to solve these like long term problems? And how does the government, how does um, large funders, how do they play a role in that kind of change? Um some difficult questions, some that are very um, up in the air, but um, yeah, things I think would be interesting to hear more about. Thank you for listening to uh, our episode today. And um, I want to also thank Patreon supporters for supporting the podcast on that platform. You can find us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. And if you have any comments or you want to reach out to me personally, my email is omar, O-U-M-A-R, at isthisforreal.ca. Thanks for listening.